Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers, and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. We chose Cairns because it was the closest, and my grandmother wanted to hightail it back to the island as soon as the war broke out, thinking it would stop next year. No one knew when it was going to stop. And she did that. Stella Sun is a Chinese-Australian woman who was born on Thursday Island in 1931. We were four years in Cairns, and as soon as we were allowed to, we took a little cargo boat back, two-cabin cargo boat. And the grass was a foot, oh, not a foot, a thigh high on the island, and bullet holes were in the walls. Everything had been ransacked. An only photo I have ever had of my mother and father. The only photo I would ever have. We left on the wall. All the soldiers just came in, and I think they used the walls for target practice. I only stayed there a year or two, about two years at the most, and decided to go back to go to my mother, and I stayed with her for a few months and took off to Sydney. I just turned. 17. Thursday Island is just three square kilometres and it lies off the far north coast of Queensland in the narrow waterway that sits between the northmost tip of Australia and New Guinea, known as the Torres Strait. Stella's account is in fact a series of memories that she recounted to Dr Alana Camp in a 2010 interview. It's a rich story about migration, settlement, and family. So how did Alana come to interview Stella about this fascinating journey? So my name's Alana Camp. I'm postdoctoral research fellow in the School of Social Sciences and Psychology at Western Sydney University. Now, one of the first questions people ask me, whether they're audience members in a conference room, my students, colleagues, or even the people I'm researching, the question they ask me is, why are you doing this research? Why are you doing this research? This idea of identity, particularly in Australia, has just always been in the back of my mind. As children, we don't see difference. We know it's there, but we don't think anything of it. But as I grew up, I started to realise my own identity and how that would shift in different places and in different times of my life. And it wasn't actually until um, my late teens that I realised, hold on, yes, I'm of mixed cultural identity, but what does that mean? And people would say racist comments about particular groups and it would really affect me. And so I would think, why is this affecting me so much? And why aren't people um, thinking twice about saying it in front of me? And it's because my identity isn't so much written on my body as someone with darker skin or who wears a hijab or etc. would have racial markers. Alana, you've been investigating Chinese-Australian women and you're putting women front and centre in your research. So in terms of academic disciplines, how are you approaching your research? Okay, so I consider myself a, a historical geographer. Um, as well as a number of other things, such as a feminist geographer and post-colonial geographer. So the, the primary research that I've been doing 
um, since 2009 is looking at Chinese Australian women in the white Australia policy era because they're a group of people who have been erased from our history books um, in particular and from research. So I'm really looking at what um, their lives were like, that how they constructed their identities in particular spaces and over particular periods of time. So again, looking at that overlap of gendered, racialized, classed identities, but also bringing that into the present, how did their experience influence an Australian identity that we are living today? Mm, so feminism seems to be a central analytical tool in this research. Can you tell me how you're putting feminism to work in this study? Okay, so the feminist component of my work is really rooted in the understanding that women traditionally in, in any type of social research or historical research have been forgotten. And there has been since the 80s in particular, I mean, in the 60s it was emerging as well, but this real push to start to understand women's role, um, whether it's historical or um, if you're in the social sciences, really putting in their experiences and their stories into research. So that's the feminist angle that I look at. I'm very much concerned with putting women at the centre of research and allowing their voices to be heard as opposed to just comparing their experiences to more patriarchal understandings of everyday life. So you're doing historical feminist research, but are you focusing on a particular era? I've really concentrated on the white Australia era, which is post-1901, um, because I think that's such a crucial moment in Australian history or period of time in Australian history, because that's when our we were really forging a, a national identity, because 1901 obviously being the year of federation. And because a lot of the, the groups that I look at and the White Australia era, we have to remember that the White Australia policy wasn't formally abolished until 73, 1973. So a lot of the people who I research are still alive um, or their descendants are still alive and very much remember what was going on in that period. So I'm lucky because I'm not looking at some ancient time that no one can remember. I'm, I'm um, working on a period of time that is still very fresh in our memory. Whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. That's Wittgenstein, and he asks us to think about the silences in our historical records. So Alana, are there any silences in the historical records about Chinese Australians? The primary silence that I have found is in our census records. Um, well, actually, it's not a silence because they are in our census records, but the way that they've been documented is um, quite interesting. And also the way that those uh, census records have subsequently been used by research um, is extremely interesting. There's huge silences there. So what you're showing is that even statistical data is constructed by national ideas and discourse. Exactly. So we have to remember that, um, so the census records I'm looking at is during the White Australia era, so 1901, and I, I close off at 1966 because that's when we have racialized census records. So that questions were asked during that time of what is your racial 
identity or what is your race and they actually used a blood rule so depending on how much blood you had of the different racial group um, determined your race and it was also um, patrilineal so it went by your father's line so if your father was Chinese and your mother was Anglo-Australian you were automatically classified as racially Chinese so all those types of rules and regulations were set by somebody, um, defined by somebody. So you may not think in your everyday life that you are Chinese, but when you read these census rules, you have to mark, okay, well, my dad's Chinese, I must be racially Chinese. Okay, so we should get into the stories of these women. So what were the lives of Chinese Australian women like? So incredibly complex stories. Some experienced huge amounts of racism and discrimination in the white Australia era. Some didn't experience any and tell me that today they're experiencing more. So that's in terms of their kind of racialized identities. In terms of their gendered identities, some were restricted from education because their families followed quite a Confucian idea of um, patriarchy and, and, and males leading the family economically and educationally. Um, while others had parents who had moved to Australia, particularly so that their, their children, male or female, could have those opportunities. So their experience was, experiences were incredibly diverse. Um, in terms of, say, cultural maintenance as well, some um, families really strove to become Australian and were pressured to assimilate. So they lost language. It was very difficult to maintain uh, food traditions, etc. While as other families really wanted to assert their Chinese identity and mothers often played a key role in that. So mothers would try their hardest to prepare Chinese meals and pass down those food traditions. And because of the educational thing, a lot of uh, migrant mothers couldn't speak English. So they inadvertently passed down language to their daughters. So again, extremely diverse. So a lot of the interview participants, the women that I've interviewed, the Chinese Australian women, talk about this Confucian patriarchy and how it defined their life. So whether their education wasn't prioritised, their brother's education was prioritised, how they were expected to stay home and cook and clean, etc. how their mothers were defined by these gender roles. But then it was quite interesting because that tension between Western and Confucian patriarchy was really brought to light by the actual women themselves because they were using this dualism of, well, this is Confucian patriarchy versus Western patriarchy and almost using the essentialisms that we try and deconstruct in our research. But then again, one interview participant actually said to me, well, what I was experiencing wasn't any different to what my friend Jane at school was experiencing. She said she might have been white, Australian, but she was still, her brothers were more important than her. So it, there is very much um, overlaps, but it seems that the very people I'm researching draw upon the essential ideas that each are different. So is there a danger in essentializing Eastern and Western patriarchy? Yes, there is very much a danger in essentializing Eastern and Western patriarchy, but there is also a danger in saying that all patriarchy is the same. Um, because as we know from the feminist movement, every woman is different and we cannot have one feminism to represent all women. 
there's this really interesting idea in feminism that um, a white Western woman still has power over a black woman because of her racialized identity. So that feminism cannot represent them both because they have equal distributions of power in their everyday life. So that is the danger, I think, of saying that all patriarchy is the same. What do these women teach us about multiculturalism today? That these women and these communities were almost practicing an unofficial multiculturalism before the multicultural policy emerged in the 70s and 80s. And I think it's really important to understand that what we take for granted today, our food culture, our Chinese New Year celebrations, and all of the multiculturalism we experience today has been rooted in the struggles of these people and how despite all of the restrictions on their movements, all of the discriminatory policies and practices, assimilation, etc., they maintained their cultural traditions. So we're almost living their legacy. And we also have to remember that today in Australia, at the last census, there was something around 800,000 people with Chinese ancestry. I think that was the seventh highest ancestry group. So it's a huge proportion of Australians who have Chinese ancestry. And obviously since the 80s, there's been a huge shift in the type of migration and where these people of Chinese ancestry have come from. They're no longer coming from South China. Predominantly, they're coming from Hong Kong and other areas of the diaspora. So these people are also stakeholders in this research. They're the way that policies are implemented to you know, structure our society, structure the way these people are integrated into our communities are all based on this history of Chinese migration. Even though it's been dif- a different history to theirs, um, it's still very much a legacy that we're living. So really these stories tell us a lot about the everyday ways people just get on with doing multiculturalism. Exactly, exactly. So yes, we have our regulatory systems in place, but we can't forget the people in the story. And I think the people are so often forgotten, whether it's females because of the patriarchal system of our research, or whether it's, you know, the non-white people in our stories. They're the people who are forgotten, but who are so important in the development of our nation and our identity. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you liked this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment through iTunes. I'm Dallas Rogers. See you next time.